The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We'll begin this morning what will amount to a two, maybe three-week look at Verses 11 through 32, here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, one of the most, if not the most famous parable that Jesus told. I can remember it very vividly, although it's been a number of years ago. Danielle and I had traveled to Florida, and we were attending a college football bowl game. My favorite team was playing in the game. Danielle could care less about football, so she was just accompanying me. But I was excited. My team was in a bowl game, and we got to go to Florida. The game was in Orlando, a big stadium. We were playing a, a good team that year. And somewhere along the way, in about the second quarter of the game, Danielle got up from her seat and she left and went to the restroom and she came back to her seat. And a, a couple moments after she sat back down, I heard her gasp really loudly. She was like, ah! like that. Well, husbands all know when your wife does that, something is dreadfully wrong and you immediately go into like panic mode, like what happened? What's wrong? How do I fix it? And she said, I lost my ring. Now, I had just given her a ring for Christmas, and this was just a week or two after Christmas that we were at the game. Now, if you know my wife, you know she's not really one to wear much jewelry, so jewelry doesn't normally mark our gift giving because it's just not something that's really her style or her thing. But on this particular year, I had found a particular ring that I just really thought she would like, and she absolutely loved it. It was probably one of the better Christmas gifts that I've given over the years. And uh, she really appreciated that ring. And this was the first time wearing it somewhere. It was to this bowl game. And she immediately looked down at her hands and realized the ring was gone. We're in a stadium, mind you, with tens of thousands of, of football fans. She had just returned from the restroom. And so I could see in her mind, immediately the wheels are turning, she's retracing her steps. And she immediately concludes, I must have, I must have dropped it in the restroom. So up from her seat she goes and races back to the bathroom. Like a good, supportive husband, I said, hope you find it, and went back to watching the game. I immediately deduced, I can't help you in the women's restroom, so I'm going to watch the game. And I think I probably made a comment, something along the lines of, you can kiss that one goodbye. She's gone for quite some time. And eventually she comes back with a huge smile on her face. In my mind, the ring was gone. There's no way in a college football game, in a women's restroom, with a constant flow of people going in and out, there's no way that ring's going to show back up. But I underestimated my wife's thoroughness and diligence and her tenacity. She went back to the restroom, and somehow... As the story goes, I'm told, 
convinced all the women who were currently in that restroom at the time to go through the trash can with her. So if you can imagine, if you've ever worked a project with my wife, you can see this playing out in your mind, I'm sure of it. The trash can is coming out and all the paper is strewn across the floor and looking for this ring and she's got these desperate people helping her try to find it. They emptied the trash can, no ring. Devastated, she is racking her brain thinking what could have happened to this ring. She leaves the restroom and wanders around the concourse and eventually finds an administrative office. How do you even do that in a strange stadium at a bowl game? And somebody was in that office and so she begins to explain to this person, this complete stranger, my husband gave me a ring and I really like it. I'm trying to tell myself it's only a thing and it's okay, but I'd really like to find it and I, I don't know if you can help me. And this lady immediately has compassion on her and says, honey, let me come help you. And Danielle says to her, look, I've already gone through all the trash. The ladies helped me go through the trash in the trash can. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not in there. This lady says, well, let me come and let's try again. So they march back down to this same restroom. Time has gone by now, you know, more flow of people in and out of the restroom. And once again, they empty the trash can. This time, getting every piece of paper that's in the trash can and opening it. And you can imagine the joy when one of them opened up a piece of paper in the trash can and there was the ring. If, if you've ever seen my wife when something really exciting happens, then you can imagine what that looks like. She was jumping up and down for joy. The women in the bathroom are celebrating. The stranger that they've never even met before has found her ring. She comes back to her seat just beaming. You know, you'll never believe what just happened. My team got slaughtered in the game, but my wife found her ring. It was a successful day all around. But I have to tell you, I was... 99.9% .9 sure that ring was gone, never to be found again. But she found it. The lost ring was found. It's actually a story that's quite similar to what we find in verses 8 through 10 of Luke chapter 15. If you recall, Jesus is giving in Luke 15 three stories, three parables that all revolve around a similar theme. Something is lost, something is found, and a celebration ensues when the lost thing is found. We saw the first of these stories last week. It was a story about a shepherd who had a, a lost sheep, and the shepherd pursued that lost sheep and rescued the lost sheep and brought it back to the fold, and a celebration ensued because the lost sheep had been found. Well, Jesus continues with that theme in verse 8. Speaking to a crowd, more particularly speaking to the Pharisees and religious leaders who were mixed in with the crowd, these stories, though they have application to everybody that was there, were aimed primarily at the religious leaders. And so he tells a second story. He says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Short story, similar to the first, right? 
something lost, something found, and a celebration that the lost thing is found. There are some differences in details. This time, it's a woman and not a shepherd. If the Pharisees and religious leaders weren't already indignant enough that Jesus is asking them to pretend like they're filthy shepherds, he's now telling them another story and asking them to put themselves in the shoes of a woman, which he would have never done in the first century. This time it's not a sheep that's lost, but it's a coin. But like a sheep, a coin can't do anything to find itself. It's going to remain lost until somebody comes along and finds it. So that dynamic is quite similar. And it's an easy story to understand. A woman has ten coins and she loses a coin. Coins are a Greek drachma, otherwise equivalent to a Roman denarius. We don't use either one of those anymore, so you have no idea what that means or how valuable it is, but it was a coin that represented roughly an average day's wage for an average worker. So it was one day's wage. Basically, in case you're wondering enough to buy one sheep. It wasn't a fortune, but this woman only had ten, and one of them she lost. And so it was important to her, even if in the big picture it wasn't extravagantly valuable. We don't know where these coins came from or why she had them. Some people speculate that it was a dowry from her father. Some speculate that it was the, sort of a, an equivalent to a modern-day emergency fund that she had collected in case she hit hard times. She had some money to be able to attend to her affairs. And we're not told specifically how she got it, and we're not told specifically how she lost it. Some would say that she may have kept them around her neck on a necklace and one of them fell off, maybe much like my wife in the women's restroom. Or perhaps she was holding them in some sort of a little pouch, which wouldn't have been uncommon in the day, where she'd wrapped up her coins and tied them in a little pouch that she kept, and somehow it had come loose, and one of the coins had fallen out. Whatever happened, she lost it, and at some point, she realizes that the, the coin is lost, that where she had ten, she now has only nine. And immediately, like my wife at the football game, she immediately goes into action, right? She, we're told she lights a lamp, she sweeps the floor, and she searches diligently. If you can imagine a first century home, it's not like your home, not like my home, not like any of the homes in the neighborhoods around us. Just imagine a, a basically a one-room primitive little house with mud clay brick sort of walls, a packed dirt floor. It was covered in dust and dirt and cracks and crevices. Probably dark because it didn't have any windows, maybe one small little area at the top where some airflow could get in, largely dark as the sun goes down. Certainly not lighted with nice electric lights like you have in your home and like I have in mine. And so immediately she knows, I've got to do some things in order to find this coin. I've got to light a lamp so that I can search the floor diligently and see every inch of the floor. The coin could be anywhere. It could be hidden under some of the dirt and dust that's been shuffled around. So she needs to pull out the broom and start sweeping every inch of the floor. She's searching. So you can imagine this woman just walking around this, this, this dirt floor, looking in every crack and crevice. And when she doesn't find it, pulling out the broom and sweeping around until until she finds it. What we're told is she doesn't give up until she finds the coin. We have no idea how long it took her, but we know she didn't quit until she finds it. And can you imagine the, the, the joy in her heart 
when she finally saw that glimmer of silver on the floor and she realized the lost coin is found. It's no longer lost. Her heart must have leapt in her chest. She's so excited, she calls her friends and calls her neighbors, and they all come over, and they throw a party, and they celebrate the the coin. It was lost. It was as good as gone. One in a million chance of finding that thing, and I found it. Maybe like the ladies in the restroom, celebrating the lost ring that was found. Well, it's not a just a cute story. It has a moral, and the moral is simply this. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy before the angels of God. That's just another way of describing God's joy. He says, God is joyful. Heaven rejoices with the joy of God when one sinner repents. And it's the same imagery in the story of the shepherd and the sheep. It's this image of a God who is absolutely ecstatic every single time one sinner repents. One lost person is found. It brings joy, exceeding joy to the heart of God. When one of the people he created who's wandered away comes back. It brings joy to his heart. When lost sinners come back to God in repentance and faith, God does not reluctantly receive them. He doesn't scold them for their rebellion. He doesn't give them a whole, make them sit there and listen to a whole list of I told you so's. He doesn't lecture them and tell them how disappointed he is in them. He doesn't make them grovel at his feet. He doesn't give them a whole list of of things to do to get back into his good graces. He receives them with overwhelming joy. That's his response. No matter how far they've wandered, no matter how long they've been gone, he rejoices. He celebrates. In case you're wondering, that is the main theme of this whole section of Luke chapter 15. If we were to summarize what is the point of Jesus Telling these three stories, the main theme is the joy of God when lost sinners are found. That is the issue. That is the issue that he wants to mention and repeat and repeat again. Because it is the main issue that the religious leaders of Israel have totally and completely missed. The joy of God at saving lost sinners. Of all the attributes of God, the joy of God is one of the attributes that is quite undersold and under-talked about and under-celebrated. The fact that God is a, a God of joy, that he is a joyful God, that is part of who he is and part of his character. And it's all throughout Scripture. You go all the way back to First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 26 and following. The author writes, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Strength and joy are in the Lord's place. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 
Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, speaking to the people of God, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's the picture of a God who is overflowing with divine, pure joy. He rejoices over his people. Over in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, Jesus is speaking and he's telling a parable, a parable of the talents. He describes a master and his servants, which is really a picture of people who will face judgment at the end of time for what they've done with what the Lord has given to them to do. And he says, in the midst of that, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into what? The joy of your master. It's a picture of heaven. Heaven is a place of God's pure joy. When you and I stand before the judgment and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, a door opens into a place that is full of eternal joy because it's inhabited by a God who overflows with eternal joy. Despite many people imagining God as some sort of a, of a cosmic killjoy, that is in fact the opposite of who he is. He's a God of great joy. Everlasting joy marks his presence. He gives joy to his people. Heaven is a place of eternal joy. And there's nothing that brings him greater joy than lost sinners being found. It fuels his joy, if you will. Of course, God's people should reflect his joy, shouldn't they? The things that bring him joy ought to bring us joy. The fact that tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners were hearing the words of Jesus and they were drawn into him and they were believing what he said and they were looking at their own lives and they were repenting of their sin and returning to the Lord, that fact should have been a cause for tremendous celebration. But instead, the religious leaders were indignant and they were furious. Not only were they not overflowing with the joy of God at lost sinners being saved, they were the opposite of that. And while they could affirm the appropriateness of a shepherd rejoicing when he finds his lost sheep, and they could affirm the appropriateness of a lady celebrating with her friends when she finds her lost coin, what they had absolutely no room for in themselves was to celebrate lost sinners like these coming to Christ. And it is to that issue that Jesus gives a third story to make it abundantly clear. This one is going to be much more personal 
This one is going to make his point clear and unavoidable. This one is going to address them and address their self-righteousness very, very directly. It will at one and the same time put a finger on their sin and expose it, and it will encourage everybody else who's listening, who understands what he's communicating. And so he tells what quite likely is the most famous and well-known story that he told, commonly called Parable of the Prodigal Son. I'm calling it the Parable of the Lost Sons because there's two sons in the story and both are quite lost, just in different ways. This story is quite similar to the first two stories. Something is lost and then it's found and then a celebration ensues. However, there are some very unique and significant differences. This story involves people who make willful choices. There is a moral component to the third story that isn't found in the shepherd and the sheep and the woman and the coin. Those who are lost are lost volitionally. That is to say, they're lost because of their own choices and their own decisions and their own actions. There's a moral component here. This story is much more detailed. And this story, though, has a sort of a surprise ending. After the celebration is, is, is thrown, when the lost thing is found, there's another part to the story. There's an addendum, if you will, that goes right to the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate and to whom he's trying to communicate. And so as we walk through this third story, here's what I want you to see. As we walk through it, we're going to get a really clear look at the nature of sin. We're going to get a very clear look at the nature of repentance. We're going to get a very clear look at the character of God. And then we're going to get a clear look at what fraudulent faith looks like. So the nature of sin the nature of repentance, the character of God, and the nature of sort of fraudulent, if you will, or counterfeit faith, whichever term you like best. We won't make it too far down that road this morning, but we'll at least sort of set the table and get the beginning. Beginning in verse 11, Jesus tells the third story. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Well, the setting of the third story is quite similar to the first and the second. The setting is in uh, a village, a first century village family, if you will. We have a father and we have two sons in the story. We'll find out later that this father seems to be a wealthy father at the end. He certainly has plenty of means at his disposal to throw a large party, to kill a fattened calf, um, plenty of clothing and things to, 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 to give to his son when he returns. It appears that he was a wealthy man who had a successful farming enterprise, if you will. 
And then there's two sons, an older son and a younger son. In the law of Moses, when a parent or a father died, his estate or his, his goods would be divided up amongst his sons. The firstborn son would get a double portion compared to the other kids. So in this particular case where there's two sons, you have an older son and a younger son. The older son was going to get two-thirds of his father's estate. The younger son would have gotten one-third of the estate. That would have been his inheritance. That was what the law demanded. But this younger son is some kind of a person, isn't he? He comes to his father and he says to him, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now, there are a lot of things that are different between the first century and our century. What century is it? I don't know. It's long after the first one, though. And there are some things that are very different. There are some things that are very much the same. One of the things that is very much the same is an inheritance is normally something that one gets after our parents die. Right? It's not normally something you ask for when you're living unless you're an arrogant, self-righteous, disrespectful jerk, which is precisely what this kid is. And Jesus' audience hearing this story would have immediately been shocked at this kind of a demand, that any Jewish boy would approach his father with such outright blatant disrespect and demand he do such a thing. To make such a, a demand was really the height of disrespectfulness. It was, it was to, 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 to make an, really an utter repudiation of his father and all that he stands for. It was to reject everything that, it, that he was raised to do and to think. It was to go against all of that. And no good Jewish young man would ever dishonor his father like this young man in this story does by asking for his inheritance while his father is still alive. It's a picture of a kid who's been seething for some time. This kid has been miserable and unhappy for a long time. He's been dreaming of the day that he can exit the family, that he can get out on his own. He's been thinking about this. He's been planning this for a long time. It's not a spur-of-the-minute sort of a decision. He no longer wants any part of this family. He no longer wants any part of this farming enterprise. He no longer wants any part of this religious system that he's been raised in. He doesn't want to work on the farm. He doesn't want to live in that town. He doesn't want to submit to his father's authority. He doesn't want to live in his brother's shadow. He doesn't want any of that. He wants nothing to do with his home. He wants nothing to do with his father's rules. He wants nothing to do with his father's religion and the accompanying moral standards that come with all of that. There are some things that he does want. He wants to be free of all restraints on his desires. He wants to be free of all his family and religion and all that that represents. He wants to get out of town. He wants to go wherever he wants to go. He wants to live his life his way and he wants nobody telling him what to do. And he's been stewing on this for a long time. The only problem he has is his stubborn father won't die. So he gets sick of waiting. And he comes to his father and he demands that his dad give him his inheritance now. Can you imagine anything more hurtful to a father than that? 
than to have the son that you've loved and raised and provided for and worked your whole life to provide for to come to you and say, Dad, since you won't go ahead and die, I want my stuff now. Such an utter rejection to his face. It would have been devastating to any father, wouldn't it? Can you imagine parents, your kid to one day come to you and say something like that? Dad, I, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I don't want anything to do with his family anymore. I, I, I don't believe anything you've taught me. I think it's all a bunch of garbage. Just give me what you owe me. Give me what's due me, and I'm going to hit the road. That's what this young man does in the story. It's shocking, really. It's shocking. But in this one simple request, Jesus gives us a very clear view of what sin looks like. We get a clear view of what sin looks like in his request, and we get a clear view of how sin operates and what happens next. What does sin look like? Well, there's a whole array of things that we see here. It's like this multi-headed hydra, if you will, that is sort of captured this kid's heart. This sin looks like greed. It's, it's the greed that says, I want more than what I have. I don't like the life that I have. I don't have enough. There's more out there, and I want it for myself, and I want it now. It looks like rebellion, doesn't it? It looks like a rebellion against authority. It's, it's a rebellion that says, Dad, I don't want anything to do with your rules, and I don't want to live under your household, and I don't want to live the way you've told me to live, and I don't want to be accountable to you anymore. It looks like a lust for pleasure. Erupting out of this kid's heart is essentially, I want to I live not for my family, not for the good of my community, not to honor my God. I just want to live to pursue my own personal desires. Unrestrained. I just want pleasure. It looks like selfishness, right? The only person that matters is me. Dad, I don't care what you think. You don't matter to me. My rest of my family, you don't matter to me. The community, you don't matter to me. Church family, you mean nothing. The only person that matters in this equation is me, and I don't have what I want, and I need to get what I want so I can go pursue the other things I want. Sin is selfishness. It looks like ingratitude and discontentment, doesn't it? It's a kid who looks at his life and he's determined, I deserve more than what I've been given. Dad, you've ripped me off. I deserve more. He has no gratitude whatsoever for what his father has done. All he can think about is what he's missing out on. For his whole life, his dad has provided all the things he needed, right? He's provided food. He's provided shelter. He's provided a home. He's provided his love. He's provided clothing. He's provided moral instruction. He's provided for a meaningful work to do. But this kid has no gratitude for any of that stuff, does he? None whatsoever. Instead of appreciating it, he resents it. He's convinced himself that there's, the grass is greener out there. But sin looks like pride, doesn't it? Then I know better. I know better. 
what needs to happen in my life than you do. Who are you to tell me how to live? I got it. I don't need a dad telling me what to do. And when you boil it all down, sin really looks like hatred, doesn't it? It's a kid saying to his dad, Dad, I want what you have to give me, but I don't want you. I want the stuff that you can provide for me, but I don't want any part of you. He doesn't love his father. He's totally rejected him. Dad, I don't know what anything else to do with you. Just give me the money. That is a nasty, nasty picture, isn't it? That is what sin looks like. But it isn't meant to be just sort of a figurative thing that we say, ooh, boy, that's icky. Boy, that's bad. It's meant to be a mirror that we look in and realize every time you and I sin in our lives, that's what's happening inside of our heart to some degree. Some combination of those things, and probably in many cases, all of those things are going on in our own heart. The God who created us, our Heavenly Father, we're saying to Him, what you have given me isn't enough. I want more. I don't want to live under your rules anymore. I know you've set boundaries on my life, but I don't want to live in those boundaries. I want to live outside of those boundaries, and so I'm going out there. I don't want to live under your authority. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what you tell me I need to do. The one that matters here is me. You haven't given me enough, and I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. There's something else out there that I want, and I'm going to go pursue that. Because after all, I know better than you do how I ought to live my life. And frankly, at the end of the day, I don't really love you at the beginning anyway. I just love what you give me. I need you around because you supply the stuff that I want. But I don't really love you. Friends, when you and I, when we sin, that's what we're saying. That's what we're doing. And it's no less despicable and disgusting than what this kid does. It's meant to be a picture of every sinner. Really, this kid is. That's what sin looks like. It's what it looks like in his life. It's what it looks like in my life. It's what it looks like in your life. And it's pretty ugly. Well, if if the request wasn't shocking enough, the father's response is just as shocking. We're told he divided his property between the kids. Now, this would have been absolutely shocking to the religious leaders. No respectable Jewish man would have done that in the face of that kind of request, in the face of that kind of disrespect. Any self-respecting Jewish dad would have taught his son a little lesson there about respect. At the very least, what a father could have done is publicly shamed his son. He could have disinherited him. He could have kicked him out of the family altogether and considered him dead. And if he wanted to go by the Jewish law, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the law provided a remedy for moments like this. Look at verse 19 of Deuteronomy 21. What do you do when you have a rebellious son? His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of 
the city at the gate and place him where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son. He's stubborn and rebellious. He won't obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. That's what the law said. Now what does this dad do? He does none of that. He divides his property. Two thirds to the oldest, one third to the youngest. And gives it to them. He gives it to them. What do you think about that? He gives it to them. As disrespectful and shameful and rebellious as the demand is, the dad, he agrees. He agrees. Son gets exactly what he wants. Then we're told in verse 13 what happens. Not many days later, he gathered all he had and he took a journey. I gathered all together, the Greek word there, it simply gives the idea that he took all of the possessions and he turned them into cash. He liquidates the assets. His father's wealth was in his farm and all of his farming assets. Well, he's got farming assets and what this kid wants is a farming assets. That's not going to do him much good for the plans that he has. What he needs are liquid assets. And so he turns these farming assets into liquid assets by selling them all promptly to someone else. Everything that his father has worked hard to build up, to leave to him, he sells it like it means nothing to a stranger. And we're told he sold all he had. He doesn't leave anything behind. He sells everything he owned. It's an indication that this kid has absolutely no intention of ever coming back. His plan is to go and never come back. He does that. Sells it all. He's got a bunch of money in his pocket. He has nothing left at home. He hits the road and heads out for a far country. Where's the far country? We're not told. He just wants to be out of reach of his father, out of reach of his family, out of reach of their faith. He wants to leave Israel. He wants to go to the Gentile lands. He wants to be free of all the restraints of home where he can do whatever he wants to do and nobody is going to get in his way. That's what he does. And he goes and gives himself over to the whole pursuit of pleasure. We're told he, he spends his money on reckless living. The word there suggests luxury and immorality. It's living a life of luxury with no moral restraint. Whatever he wanted to do, he did it. Whatever he wanted to buy, he bought it. Everything that his father and his faith had forbidden, he now pursues wholeheartedly, including illicit sexual activity. In verse 30, we're told that he spends a good portion of his money on prostitutes. You can just imagine this kid, right? Partying it up with the Gentiles. When somebody has money to blow on debauchery, there's never a shortage of people around willing to facilitate it. Isn't that right? He lives it up. He lives big. He buys it all. He parties it up. Until the money runs out. Not only is he rebellious, but he's an he's a unwise fool, isn't he? He hasn't made any plans for the future. He's living one day at a time. He doesn't even plan to stretch out his money. He blows through it all until one day he wakes up. And guess what? It's all gone. Gone. And unfortunately for him, the timing coincides with a natural disaster, a famine. Well, that stinks, doesn't it? 
There's a shortage of food and what food's available is expensive. And we're simply told now all of a sudden he's in need. He's away from home. He has no family to, live, to lean on. He squandered all his resources. He has nothing left. He's utterly bankrupt. The friends who helped him party it up are now gone. He's literally starving. A young man who had lived in such luxury, eating and drinking all he wanted, is now utterly destitute. Utterly destitute. I read a story this week about a man named Alex Toth. You probably never heard of Alex Toth. He's a Floridian who died in the early 2000s. In the 1990s, he won the lottery in Florida. $13 million. Not a bad haul for buying a lottery ticket somewhere. He chose to get his lottery proceeds in annual uh, sort of installments each year Oddly enough, $666,666. Strange, isn't it? He and his wife, Rhoda, upon getting the initial proceeds, took off jet-setting the world. They bought all kinds of big-ticket items. They were traveling all over the place. They were hanging out with Oprah and Trump. Alex ends up wasting much of it on his gambling addiction. On top of that, they never hired a tax, a tax attorney to help them. So they ended up owing the federal government over $2.5 million and were tar- charged with tax fraud. They ended up filing for bankruptcy twice, in fact. And here's the thing I wanted you to catch. In the final years of his life, he and his wife lived in such squalid conditions that literally the only electricity that they had was through an extension cord that was rigged to their car engine. million. And that's where they ended up. It's just like this kid. Just like this kid. Well, you'd think that'd be enough to wake him up, wouldn't you? Realize the foolishness of his choices. But he doesn't. He still thinks he can handle all this on his own. So he goes out and hires himself out to a Gentile pig farmer. Isn't that ironic? The Jewish boy... A Jewish boy feeding pigs for a Gentile? Could you get more shameful and humiliating? I don't think you could. Sitting in a pig pen with the pigs, we're told he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He hits rock bottom, doesn't he? He's done. He can't get any lower. He's now jealous of the pigs because they have food to eat and he doesn't. He's hungry, he's alone, and he's miserable. That's what sin does. That's what it does. I'll put it out there and we'll explore it more next week. You know what sin does, how it operates? We already saw what it looks like. Here's how it operates. What sin does is it promises freedom, joy, fulfillment, and pleasure. And what it does is it provides bondage, depression, emptiness, and misery. That is how sin operated in this kid's life. And that's how it operates in all of our lives.
It promises freedom and joy and fulfillment and pleasure, and it ends up giving us nothing but bondage and depression and emptiness and misery. And this kid is a poster child for that. And I suspect when you look at your life and I look at mine, we can see examples of how that operation is played out, can't we? There's a time in your life where you just thought, you know what? I know what God wants from me, but I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. I don't like it. What I really want is freedom. What I really want is joy, and I'm not happy. What I really want is fulfillment, and I feel unfulfilled. What I really want is pleasure, and I think I can find it over there with that person. I feel like I can find it over there with those substances. I feel like I can find it over there telling that lie or stealing that thing. And the hook gets set. And what we find at the end of the day is not only does sin not provide those things, at least in any lasting measure, we end up worse off than where we began by far. And that's what happens to this kid in the story. I wonder, though, as we think about what sin looks like and how it operates, I wonder if in a crowd this size there are folks who are in the midst of that, that experience now. Somewhere on that continuum of, of anticipating sin or early on in the engagement of sin. Or maybe well down the road where you're realizing all the things that you thought you'd get when you did these things, you're not actually getting them. They're not materializing. But you haven't yet turned. Whatever it is, you need to take a long, hard look at this young boy and what he said and what he wanted and where it took him. And ask the question, am I heading down that road? In what ways have I essentially said to God, God, thanks, I like having you around for the things that you give me, but what I really don't want is you and your rules and your authority and your restraint and the accountability that you bring to my life. I want to do my thing. I'm not satisfied with what you've given me. I'm not grateful for that. There's more that I think I deserve. I don't think that you really know how my life needs to be lived. I know how my life needs to be lived, and I'm going to do it my way. Does any of that stuff get near to your heart and near to your life in any way? If it does, the story is for you. I guarantee you the crowd that Jesus had gathered on this occasion, apart from the religious leaders, they needed no convincing of this. The tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, they had a whole life track record of that very thing. They knew it all too well. And they saw in Jesus something different, something better, something truer. They saw in him someone who was willing to receive them in spite of the fact that they've run away. Somebody who loved them even though they had rejected him. 
Do you see Christ that way? Let me just tell you this morning or encourage you, if you're living in sin right now, you're pushing those boundaries, turn around, repent, return to your Father. We'll see in the next week or so that he's gracious and merciful and finds no greater joy than he finds when his wandering kids turn around and come home. I can assure you, if you return to him this morning, you'll not get a lecture. You'll not get a list of I told you so's. He'll not make you grovel at his feet. He'll not give you a list of things to do to get back into his good graces. He'll welcome you with arms filled with joy and receive you to himself. Let's pray together. God, we can't imagine a God like that. We don't treat each other that way when we're sinned against by far. It's hard for us to even imagine a dad who would respond the way this dad did in your story. Quite frequently, we imagine you as angry and mean and ready to punish. We fail to see you as joyful and rejoicing when your wayward kids return home. But that's who you are. We're fools to run away to begin with, and we're fools to continue down the road, even when we begin to see that sin can't deliver what it promises. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here in this room that's running from you, that spurned you, that's living in open sin and rebellion, that they would see you as a joyful God with open arms who's waiting for them to come home. And that they would come home today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.